Okay. Suspend your disbelief because the Comics Pals are joined by one of the most talented, celebrated, brilliant minds in comics right now. And I see you looking around and <laughs> trying to figure out who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the writer behind Detective Comics, Venom, Carnage, the upcoming Rare Flavors, many deaths of Lila Stars, Lila Star. So many incredible books. I'm talking about Rom V. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's always good to come back and chat with you guys. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, we were reflecting a little earlier uh, off mic about the fact that the world has changed a lot. And, you know, your personal life has changed. Our lives have changed uh, a lot. And it's incredible how time flies. And this is like, this is the craziest two years to have gone by, two, three years uh, in a long time. So um, we're going to talk a lot about that. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's my bread and butter, right? Like world changing, people doing different things. Uh, yes. If people didn't, if people didn't do that, I'd have nothing to write about. So, <laughs> and uh, quite frankly, we'd have nothing to talk about. Yeah. Um, so we are going to talk to Ram about all the aforementioned comics and the world and all that kind of good stuff. If you have questions for Ram, uh, we will be getting to those. Later on, we have a list of questions that came from patrons and Discord members. Um, if you want to add your questions, leave them in the live chat. We will get to them eventually. Before we get into the chat, I want to let you guys know how you can support the show. Of course, we are the Comics Pals on all social platforms. The best way to support us is heading on over to patreon.com slash the Comics Pals. Uh, there are lots of great things over there that aren't available everywhere else. So if you want to support us and get some bang for your buck, we've got an exclusive show over there. We have newsletters that we send out weekly and you get a nickname and a shout out on the show. So uh, I want to really quick take the time to say thank you to the uh, the most special pals in the universe, Thunderstruck Rebecca Alejandro and the Hound of Justice Atomic Hound. And of course, the rest of our patrons, the Night Stalker, Harris Dijinsky, Brian Demolisher Del Pozo, Kefis the Incorruptible, Momentum Mike Elliott, Starcross Catherine Stars, Dan the Truth Trudeau, Joel Justice, and Jalen the Sanguine Sorcerer. Thank you all so, so much. If you want to watch this live, this is live on YouTube and Twitch every single Saturday at 10.15 a.m. Eastern. Thursdays at 6 p.m. for Pals Polls. Join our Discord server. And uh, for everything else, at the comments, Pals. Okay, enough. <laughs> now, Rom. I want to start with Distillery right out the gate because i have a belief about creators my belief is that creators creative people are people whose opinions and voices drive the world in a lot of ways and we see that throughout history that's been the case um change has been made from the voices of people who create and so now Comics has a new publisher that's, whose founding creators are all some of the most brilliant minds in comics. And you being, in my opinion, chief among them, why was being a founding creator at Distillery important to you? And what, what is it, was it about the message and the belief of the ownership of David Steinberger and Chip Mosher. 
what was it about the pitch and the belief that made you need to be a part of this? Well, I mean, when you put it that way, it sounds a way way more thought through and ominous than it actually was. <laughs> okay. Um, so so well done. <laughs> um, to be honest, uh, people always people always ask. I mean, they always ask me like, "What is your marker for success in the industry?" Right. And and when I was starting out very early on, I told my friend, "Oh, hey, I want to be one of the writers." that falls on that roster of Hellblazer writers. Um, so if, if I could count myself amongst, you know, Delano, Ennis, Ellis, Moore, Morrison, Kamen, all of those guys, I would have been successful. And it was a very, it was a very myopic way of thinking about things uh, because about a month later they canceled Hellblazer. So um, the reason that my friend had asked me this question, and he was much wiser than me at the time, he said, at some point, success just becomes making the next thing and not worrying about anything else. And I think so many creators, even today in, in comics and other mediums, like they're constantly, look at the, look at the WGA strike. You're, you're worried about your day-to-day, -day, whereas if you really want to be creative, you shouldn't. Ideally, you're not in a place where you're worrying about where your next paycheck is coming from. Instead, you're focusing on making good art, making good stuff, right? And from that perspective, Distillery kind of lets me do exactly that. The The pitch that Chip and David made was, look, obviously, from a commercial standpoint, we're going to pay you enough to make this book where you don't have to worry about it. We'll get the artists. All of that is great. But from a long-term perspective being a creator who has a stake in the company and having all the creators various works kind of build value towards that company and and therefore the success of each book kind of taking everyone along to a point where i i don't have to worry then about like oh where's my next creator owned pitch going how much do i spend on it which publisher is it going to be but who do i need to pitch it to no this is a this is a deal that I have on with this with this group of creators, with this publisher, with this company that I'm also part of. And I'm going to make, you know, X number of books over X number of years. And that's it. I don't have to think about anything outside of making those books over the next few years, which is really nice. Um, so my motivation is is I, I think I've given you a very Michael Mann-esque answer in that. People always ask me, like, oh, "What's why do you do this with the with the handheld camera and the shaky aesthetic?" And <laughs> he's like, "Because I have thirty days to shoot a film and a really tiny budget." So I feel like I've given you a very um, workmanlike answer, but I'm very pragmatic about these things. My, I'm, I want to safeguard my ability to make more books, and that was my motivation behind uh, joining the salute. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And, and that makes perfect sense. Does this, so this takes away, I guess, in some, to some degree from the idea that you might do creator own stuff um, elsewhere. Like, is it, would you say that when you think about creator own, you think about distillery first? No, that's not true. Um, there are books that I think fit within the framework of what I think would work at distillery. There are books 
that I don't think would fit within that framework. Hmm. Um, whenever I do a creator-owned book, I'm trying to do something that I feel like hasn't been done before or or I feel like pushes the boundaries of the medium in some way. Um, for instance, uh, I'm working I'm working on one of my creator-owned books that should be announced shortly is actually two books, only one of them written by me, the other written by a completely different creative team. What? But if you read both books in order, you get three stories instead of two. Because uh, there's a story that lives between two narratives. And see, you can't, I can't do that as a founding member at Distillery because I can't randomly say, hey, I want to bring in four other people that are also involved with the creative success of this book. So that kind of a book needs to be placed somewhere else. Um, and then people always ask me like, oh, you started on Kickstarter. Would you ever go back to Kickstarter? And I always tell them like, not with just a comic. It has to be something to me, to my mind, it has to be something that says, okay, why is Kickstarter the only place where this makes sense? Uh, and so, you know, at some point in the near future, I want to write and illustrate one of my own books. Uh, and I want to take that day. It won't be a comic. It'll be illustrated prose slash comic. Mm. Um, I want to take it to Kickstarter because the, you know, let's say a hundred people back the book. Um, I want those hundred copies to be unique in that no one copy of the book has the same content as any of the other 99 copies of that book. So each of the hundred people is getting a unique experience. And anytime you talk to someone else who has read the book, you add on to that experience a little bit more. So you get a little bit more of the story. Yeah, yes, stuff like that, which wouldn't be, it would be insane for a publisher to go, I'm going to produce, you know, whatever, 200, 300 unique copies of one book. Right. Well, that's fascinating. And I want my unique copy ASAP. So I will be one of the first backers of that when that goes live. Cheers. Um, thank you. Yeah. I mean, first I have to write and draw it, which in <laughs> itself is, is quite a bit. Um, but no, I promised myself by the time when I hit 45, I want to, you know, disappear, go away for a couple of years and then come back with a piece of work that is just like, this is what I've been doing for the past two years. And hopefully it, it it kind of holds up to the idea that, okay, I can see why you disappeared for two years while you were making this. So one of the things that we talked about when Distillery was first announced was that the industry has a lot of publishers. And we definitely saw, a, I would say, a boom uh, in publishing um, over the last five years. I feel like you could stretch that a little bit where there have been you know, a bunch of different publishers coming out and frankly, a lot of them putting out tremendous work. Um, but juxtaposing that with, you know, where sales are and where the economy is and, you know, people's spending power uh, isn't as great as it's mm -hmm. been. Um, do you think that, where do you think distillery space is within publishing uh, to make it a unique offering amongst a sea of different publishers who are all trying to grab our attention? Well, uh, I can only speak for myself as, as a reader. Uh, I don't really follow publishers. I follow creators. Um, so, you know, if, if, uh, 
Neil Gaiman is making a book at Dark Horse, I'll pick up a Dark Horse book. If he's making a book at Image, I'll pick up an Image book. If he's making a book at Boom, I'll pick up a Boom book. Um, so my, I do understand that there are people who are loyal to publishers, certainly the the, the bigger ones, uh, everyone, you know, there are retailers who are like, oh yeah, we'll always give an image book a shot. So right. I completely understand from that perspective, From but from my perspective, I follow creators. And so I think distilleries offering is, is unique in that. Like when was the last time you got a, a jock book? When was the last time you know, you got a book from from Tulalote that you didn't that you looked at and you went like, okay, this is this is fine. I've read this last Wednesday. No, they're all amazing books. And so I think part of what Distillery is doing is it's offering uh really, really high caliber creators uh as a part of their roster um for readers who want to who want to come to these books. And to be honest, like no there will be very few readers who are going to read absolutely every single book that distillery puts out because um, then distillery is not doing their job and they should be putting out more books. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like, like it's not a question that pops in my head in terms of like, as a, as a publisher, what does it offer? Uh, to me, the offering is pretty clear. It offers you these creators who are all pretty, uh, pretty amazing in my view. Absolutely. I, I can't wait for the devil's cut. I'm very excited to see. Yeah, you. yeah. I share so I did a I did a short story in that with Lee Garbett, who have been trying to, you know, work with for, for quite a few years. Um and it so turned out that we were both like, Oh, I don't have an artist for this. And Lee was like, Oh, I don't have a I don't have a story that I have figured out yet. So we were like, Oh, maybe we should do this together. Um but it's a story that I had actually conceived of before I had made Black Mumba. Uh, and it was conceived of as a part of the White Noise anthology that we were going to do. Mm. But we never got around to doing because, you know, we did other books in the meantime. Um, and so it was an interesting exercise in taking something that was 22 pages long and go like, okay, how do I tell the same thing in five pages and still have impact? So it's an interesting thing. I, I, I sent it to a few friends yesterday and they were like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. That's exciting. I think I saw that you tweeted a little bit about that. I mean, I tweeted about the story. It's, uh, like I said, it's a sci-fi relationship drama, weird Cronenbergy stuff in five pages. So that's exciting. I I cannot wait. Um, you said it best. This really is, um, and why Distillery is so exciting is because um, my hope is that what we're going to see is these top tier creators who are fully invested um, and fully incentivized to just yeah that's let, the yeah that's the other thing like yes we have a boom in publishing but I would also say that and and you know I don't I don't mean to point at anyone in particular but there's a lot of publishing that happens at the sort of indie end of things smaller scale publishing end of things where the deal that the creator gets is actually really quite exploitative um, because, you know, you talked about sales numbers being low for, for a lot of publishers. You have to understand, like the publishing revenue stream, they're not trying to make money off of their comic book sales. Uh, a lot of publishers will then take that IP that they have control over because in their contract, they've given the creator no control over their own IP. 
and then we'll go to a studio or producer and say, hey, here are 10 things we will sell you for cheap. And they will make a lot of money that way. But if the individual creator probably gets 50% of the value of whatever one thing they sold for, you know what I mean? So if you've sold the whole, I've got 10 books that I own the rights to, and I'm selling it all to you for a million dollars, let's say. That means each book is only getting how much? A hundred thousand. And you're also going to be taking 50,000 of that away from the creator. So eventually each creative team only gets a 50,000 if you've managed to sell to a, to a full studio. And that means there are about six people splitting 50,000 among themselves. That is if your million dollars all went to the creators, you see, I mean, no, uh, $500,000 all went to the creators. Whereas the publisher and themselves have sold all of these things that they, they made money off of with, with regular print sales as well. But then they've now got this $500,000 windfall. And so there are a lot of exploitative practices, certainly at the at the lower end of uh, publishing. And distillery is not that because the creators who are with distillery could go out and make a book and image and certainly earn more than that and keep all the rights that they want to. So they've come here despite having the ability to do that, uh, despite having the history of having done that. So there is a better deal there is a more equitable deal a, a deal that actually values creators on offer here you know one of the things that we talk about in the show a lot is you know the comics inter- industry and unionization and how that doesn't really exist for you know you, even as a writing profession you know we have the the writer strike happening right now um yeah. i know i know distillery isn't a union but it seems the closest to the workers and the creators actually having a say in the company itself and what yeah, goes on. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I think that's appealing in and of itself as an idea for me outside of the creative aspect of the of the publishing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see this even in the conversations that are happening within the WGA strike, right? Uh you get someone like an Aaron Sorkin comes in and goes like, Oh, it's all the it's all the B lister striking. Like, yeah, we get it, dude. You're an A lister and you make a ton of money, but what you should be doing then is going like, no, but this is an industry. And, uh, you know, it's only the idea of an industry being run as a meritocracy only works when you're at the very top of the merit list. Um, and so it's always those guys talking about it, whereas the whole the whole point of a union is, yeah, you might be a hotshot, but everyone deserves a fair deal. Um, and I feel like comics kind of works very much to the Aaron Sorkin way of things, uh, you know, the, the big name creators always have better deals on offer whereas if you're a newbie starting out like i was at one point you get offered deals that like i look back at the early deals that i was offered and i was just like man i would i would never take that today <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i mean a lot of the people coming up in comics right now they're they're at a loss uh when it comes to creating you know it, it's, yeah i mean i literally uh, was looking at a twitter thread where someone's like i made you know, 10 Kickstarter books and I'm in negative thousands in terms of yeah. money made. And A, my advice to them would be like, stop. Why are you doing this then? Uh, you know, make the thing that you really want to make, but don't try to turn it into a business if you're making a loss from get-go. Um, but 
On the flip side, if you are then trying to be a writer in an industry, there should absolutely be a, hey, look, this is a standard contract. Yep. This is what you should be getting. This is what you should be asking for. Anything that doesn't offer you this is not worth signing. Um, and, you know, I've had friends who have signed away whole IPs for a third of the value that that they will eventually get. So. Yeah, I think um, I think you hit on something. It, you know, there's no structure in place for new creators to come in and learn the ropes of 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 contracts and what they should be asking for, and you know this, that, and the other thing. And I guess you know, distillery is saying, hey, you know, if you come over here and you know you're a part of us, we're not gonna exploit you. Yeah, and, I mean, the way yeah. distillery is structured is is the more successful each creator is, the more part of the company, part of that success that they own. Right. So so really, it's telling you, work really hard on making a good book. And we will work really hard on making it a success. And when it is a success, we will both share proportionally in that success. Beautiful thing. Very simple. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you would, you would think like it wouldn't be rocket science for, for publishing to do that in general, but you know, the, the, the horror stories of publishing contracts that are out there are astounding. Like I saw, I saw another Twitter post yesterday where someone had to pay the publisher 9,000 to publish their book. Um, and there's a industry term for it called vanity publishing. And mm. I'm just like, why? It's insane to me that you would pay someone to publish a book that they will then sell and make money off of and profit off of. It's bizarre. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to my original contention. There are people who want to write and there are people who want to be seen as writers. And I'm, I'm sure the same is true for art. There are people who want to just draw and there are people who want to be seen as artists. And it's, it's usually the people who want to be seen as writers, seen as artists who take on the really bad contracts because they don't value the work. They only value the optics of, hey, I'm published. Mm. And yeah, and I guess, you know, I guess ignorance does come into play as well, but also like, hey, you know, you're worth more than this crappy deal. Your story's probably worth more than this crappy deal. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, try try teaching a creator or a creative person about self-worth, right? right. Um, so it's a really difficult thing to do because I think, creation is such a self-critical process right like you're always second guessing every choice you make uh and the the downside of that it is your instinct is to feel really poorly about your own worth and your own self because nothing is ever good enough because nothing i put down on paper is ever as cool as it was in my head uh and and is the same is the same for a lot of artists um and so I think it's very important to to have a part of you that's just like, okay, cool, that's my creative side. But when it comes to contracts, like here are my lawyers, here's my agent, they will tell me what I am worth. I will not speak to you about this contract because, because they're incentivized to get as much value out of my contract as they can because they get paid that way, which is a really lovely mechanism because now I have someone who is actually fighting to get good value out of the contract. Then because it's it's this other weird thing like i i will say yes to absolutely everything because i'm a child and if you if you come to me you're like hey new shiny ip here would you like to work on it i'll be like yes i would like to work on it and 
my manager will then call me and go like, when are you going to do this? You are already doing three books next year. And then it it literally needs that voice in my head for me to turn around and go like, okay, no, I cannot work on this because I don't have time to work on this. Well, you just uh, announced that you were stepping down or have stepped down from Venom and Carnage. Yeah, yeah. For reasons like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, slightly different reasons, but, uh, you know, some of my creator-owned stuff is being turned into, into film and TV. Uh, and so I'm uh, attached to adapt. Um, and I'm also doing work in animation. I've been doing work in, in games as well. So things outside of comics that I cannot talk about that you will not see for the next five years because they take so long to make. But sure. um, yeah, they, they chip away at my ability to work on work on books and uh, you know, no offense to to those books or or to the publisher uh, to Marvel, but I will always prioritize my timeline to include books that I'm creating rather than working on an IP. You know, I'm sure Marvel has had no trouble finding another person to write Venom or Carnage. So, well, I want to say that both of those runs um, have been incredibly impressive. I yeah, thank you. <laughs> you're you're welcome. And and I continue and I, my track record of initially <laughs> pissing off people as soon as I jump on every book, and then <laughs> six issues in, people are like, "Actually, this is pretty good." Like, okay, cool, thank you. <laughs> you know what? You're not wrong about that. You're not you're, wrong about that. Your um, motto needs to be like, "Let him, let him cook, let him cook." Absolutely. Yeah. That is that is that is the word on Romvi. Just let that <laughs> man cook. It, it's all gonna it's all gonna come together. Um. Venom and Carnage in particular are characters that I feel like you either really love or you really dislike. I think a lot of people have those kinds of feelings. Like, you know, mostly, especially if you look back at when they were created, you know, they're pretty one-dimensional characters and kind of languished in, you know, whatever stories for many years. I would never have bought a Carnage comic book if your name wasn't on it. Never. I just wouldn't Thank do you. it. I appreciate that. Um, you're welcome. And I'm so glad that I did because what I got out of it is a tremendous story. And I, I feel like, and I don't know if this is true or not, this could just be my headcanon, but I feel like there is connective tissue between Swamp Thing, Venom, and Carnage in that they're all telling stories about people who are in kind of a symbiotic interdependent relationship and what that does to them. Um, yeah, and also people who are trying to contend with the shadow of someone who came before them. Like right. Dylan trying to contend with Eddie's shadow, um, the symbiote trying to contend with Cletus's absence, uh, and Levi trying to contend with his relationship with his father. So uh, they're all paternal. Uh, if you ask my good friend Alex Pacnadel, he would tell me, he would tell you that all the stories I write are about father-son relationships. I'm like, okay, maybe true. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Ram, uh, you know, you just answered all my notes. I was going to dive into all of that, but I guess. <laughs> I will say, I, I, I was like almost annoyed. I'm like, do I like a carnage book now? Why? What, what year is it? <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah, I, no, I, yeah. um, it was a it was a joy to work on that book. It was like my guilty pleasure in terms of like 
I can do whatever I want on this book because this character is intrinsically so bonkers yeah. that I could literally, you know, have him in hell one day, have him in the future the next day, have him back in regular grounded New York the next day. Uh, and it would all still make sense. Uh, and it, it's kind of really freeing to be able to write a character like that. Um, I guess the, the, the question I really needed to sort out, like, okay, how do I make this meaningful in some way, though, interesting in some way, though? And so I felt like that character tension between the symbiote trying to say that, no, I am my own thing as well. And I have been uh, sort of weighed down by this host for so long um, that I'm trying to be more. And then you start asking the question of like, wait, was Cletus making Carnage a less dangerous, less terrible thing than it if it wants to be? So, especially yeah. like with, with with Carnage, it really felt like you got to play around in the Marvel sandbox a lot. Like you go to like the Nine Realms, you, you yeah, you, yeah. you mess with Hydra Man for a bit, which I know Sean was probably a little mad at. Yeah, but, that was you know. cool. Well, I, I thought it was awesome. <laughs> that Sean, was, that was an interesting story behind that. Yeah. Originally, the intention was to. Um, to rip apart the maker. Um, so Carnage would, was going to go after the maker originally. Um, and everything went through and that beat turned out to be like too much. So I think there were some last moment editorial that's going like, wait, 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 we shouldn't do this to the maker. <laughs> who do we pick instead? And I was like, uh, I need someone who can connect to every, but essentially the maker is present in every sort of, universe at the at the same time right he's a multiversal yeah. character um and we were like wait who do we pick that's like that that won't get the same note back and we couldn't so i i was like i put my chemical engineering brain to work and we're like wait water is a universal yeah. solvent that is therefore <laughs> present i guess we could use hydroman um so that's how that happened um yeah I love that. Bit, yeah. I thought that was a great. It made Hydra Man realize, like, oh, you could be doing so much more, buddy. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was part of it, right? Like Carnage going to someone and going, like, wait, you have so much more power than you realize, but you're an idiot, so I'm going to take it from you. Yep. <laughs> the book is a lot of fun, um, and like I was like tracking all the different ways you you were able to say, you know, there will be carnage in a given issue. And I figured like, he must be having so much fun with that. Um, but I also thought there was depth. Like, yeah, I, I kept thinking about the relationship that uh, of, of John Shade and, and Kenneth Neely and kind of what that represented, at least to me. And I kept coming back to obsession um, and, and addiction. And, you know, they both let carnage in for different reasons, but they both choose to do it. And at some point, John Shade's like, but I'm a good man. And like Carnage's reaction is like, what does that matter? Like yeah. you're here with me now, you know. Yeah. Um, and you so, could have gone home, right? It doesn't exactly. matter if you think you're a good man, but you yep. chose not to go home. So. Yep. His his ignorance to the badness within him keeps the door ajar for him to end up in this situation with Carnage, which yeah. is not different than you know Kenneth Neely who sought this out. Like he sought this out. So what's yeah. the difference between the good man and the murderer? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obsession is amoral. Uh, it doesn't care if you're good or bad. Right. It'll just it'll just ruin you just the same. So Yeah. Oh, go read Carnage. It's 
your run is just the 13 or the 12, right? Like yeah. you're not. Yeah. So that's two trades worth. It's just go buy it. It's really good. Um, I, I had a blast. I wish, I wish you were going to be able to kind of like finish. I mean, there is a bigger picture plot that, that I think the books are still following. So it should be still pretty fun to follow, uh, even for me now, because I'm like, wait, this is still following stuff that I laid out for the character, but completely different direction, I suppose. Um, but the books are supposed, the, the two books are eventually supposed to collide. Venom and Carnage are supposed to collide in a way that makes perfect sense for both plots. It's not like, okay, now we need to make the books collide, so let's bring them together in two issues. No, you will see that everything has been building up to that moment. That's nice. pretty fun. I I guess I'll keep reading the natural order. <laughs> yeah, order yeah. of things: Carnage and Venom colliding. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, let's uh, let's shift over to the DC <laughs> side of things and talk about Detective Comics. Now, I, uh, you know, you talked about people, you know, being questionable about whether the runs for them at first. I was definitely one of those people coming into Detective. I am one of those people who has a very particular idea about what Batman stories are supposed to be, which is my own mistake, right? Um, but you came on board and you're, you know, and, and I love it. It's the Rom V way to say, hey, I'm going to take you on a journey. It's the story I want to tell. And I hope you like it, but this is the story I'm telling. And it's different. And for a Batman story, it feels radical because the people that the story is based on are not Batman's typical opposition. You know, they don't look often like his enemies. They don't have origins that, and and, and their origins aren't based in places that Batman's origin enemies tend to be based out of. Yeah. And so it feels very different. The dialogue is very different. It's operatic. And it's like, at first I was put off, but as I allowed myself to fall deeper in and hear the music, all of a sudden I'm finding a story that I'm falling in love with. So did you kind of know when you took on the project that there would be some opposition? And did you expect that, hey, people will figure it out as we go along? So two things. Uh, A, everything I have done, everything, certainly in Big Two has always been like that. Um, when I when I started, when I did my first sort of Justice League Dark Swamp Thing uh, annual, there were people who was like, Look at this guy putting all this text on these pages. Ugh, terrible. Never going to be a good writer. And then people read the annual. That was based off of the preview pages. People read the annual. They were like, ah, this is actually pretty good. Okay, fine. We'll give him that. Swamp Thing, people were like, Alec. There were literally people messaging me going like, Alec Holland will always be my Swamp Thing. I'm like, what is, how old are you? Like, how is Alec Holland always your Swamp Thing? Was that Marco Turner? Like, Hey, hey, let's not, let's not, not put stuff on me. Although, <laughs> so I was like, okay, cool. Levi came out, and then I've had some pretty hardcore Swamp Thing fans come up and be like, "I haven't this. This gave me the same chills that I had when I was reading Moore's Run, or I was reading Wrightson and and Wayne and Vage and all of that." And to me, that's great because that's my that was my marker right like i wanted to be counted amongst those that roster of writers of that era and and so to me that felt like success again venom they're like what is this dylan brock kid doing taking on venom 
people eventually turned around and were like, what? Time travel? Kid? Father relationship? Great. Uh, Carnage. Carnage without Cletus is going to be terrible. People came back and they were like, oh, wait, Carnage is actually pretty enjoyable. Um, and so there's been a history of it. So I, I knew it would be the same case with Detective. But I don't try to do it in that the only thing I'm trying to do is going, okay, what's been done? And therefore, what can I take from that, but not do the same thing again? And the moment you say, I don't want to do the same thing that's been done, like, just think about it from a, from a semantic point of view, right? When someone says, I'm a fan of Batman, what do they mean? They mean that I'm a fan of whatever version of Batman I have read, which means if you say that in 1960s, you're a fan of a completely different Batman than if you say that in 1990s versus you say that right now. Um, and that's because creators came in and they said, I have a vision for this character that I'm going to do something completely different with. And some people agreed with it and some people didn't. The ones that stick around are the ones that, when all things said and done, had something of value within them. You know, like... I love Frank Miller's Batman. I love uh, uh, Denny O'Neill Batman. I love Grant Morrison's run. But I don't love them because they're sort of reaffirming why I like the character. I love them because I could pick up Morrison's Batman and read it 10 years from now and still take away cool things from it. And eventually that's all that matters. Uh, that someone who doesn't know you or me or this era when these books are coming out can come to this run, read it, and hopefully take away cool things from it. Um, and it, if I can do that, then I've been successful. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say was I talked to Brian Azzarello at a convention at some point, and he said, if you are not getting 10 out of 10s and 5 out of 5s at the same time, you're not trying hard enough. Uh, five out, sorry, 10 out of 10s and 5 out of 10s at the same time, you're not trying hard enough, which I think is absolutely right. Like, you can give people exactly what they want and get all the 9 out of 10s or the 8 out of 10s, or you can do something radical. People will come in, some of them will love it, and some of them will absolutely hate it. And that's okay. That's that's how stories are supposed to be. They're supposed to off-center you. They're supposed to challenge they're not supposed to be this kind of warm blanket that you go to sleep with, you know. I, I think to that um, to that first point, it's also interesting because what you get is you get your version. So the version of Batman or Swamp Thing that you've absorbed and are now distilling back to us. And I think that that makes it that much more uh, in, in a lot of ways special because you because i get to understand where you're coming from oh i i can see these influences i can see where you're pulling from and maybe there's some familiarity to ground me but then i get a chance to see how you innovate and how you ideate on those things and how that continues the lineage like um for me the the some of the biggest things and i've been doing a a rerun of a reread rather of some of the smaller more intimate arcs in between the big writers and you get to put your marker down one, when you get to create a whole new parliament, right? But right. I think also um, the fact that you're introducing this new character. Uh, I've been on the train for, I don't know, since I've started reading Swamp Thing, that we need to continue to advance the character. And I think 
taking him out of the comfort zone by introducing that new character is being like, oh, Ram had this idea. He's pulling from all of this stuff previously that he's absorbed and wants to push that narrative, wants to yeah. keep pushing. And uh, I think that's that continues to be shown in all of the books that you put out. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a reason, you know, to, to offer the counterpoint to everything I said so far, um, there's a reason why Batman is so iconic, right? There's a reason this character is stuck around for decades. And that reason, if you're a really, really, in my view, if you're a really good writer, you understand the fundamental reason why that icon sticks around. And then you can change everything about the character. But as long as you stay true to that core of why this character is so popular, is so identifiable, is so um, is sort of touches a chord with so many of his readers. As long as you can stick with that, you can do anything with the character and you will end up with a story that feels important to the character. What is that core for Batman? Well, to me, Batman is that part of each and every one of us who says, no, I can do more. Um, to me, he's he's the guy who comes in second and goes, no, I will come in first. I will try. Maybe, maybe I'd need to run 99 more races to do it. But the 100th race, I will come in first. Uh, and I think there is something so like spine tinglingly admirable about that. To me, one of the most iconic moments is when he stands up to, to I think it was one of the Miller uh, books, which was then adapted into an animated series that I saw. Um, to me, he stands up to Superman, he says, like, we don't need an alien to show us what we can be. Um, and And there's something so fundamentally driven about that so his drive is is really the core of that character um to me and part of what i'm doing with the run is also examining that like people keep saying like oh batman is vengeance or batman is justice blah. i don't i don't agree with that like surely you know 40 years on from when his parents died surely it has to be more about more than just vengeance at this point otherwise like You've had no character growth. Mm. Um, and to me, it's not about vengeance. To me, it's about, can I get back up? Can I stand up again? Um, and there's something inherently admirable, inherently human about that, which is this idea, like, I was talking to Garth Ennis uh, at a bar in New York, and I was giving him Indian military stories. And there's a very famous regiment in India called uh, the Gurkha Regiment. And they're supposed to be like some of the bravest soldiers you will ever ever meet on the battlefield, etc. And you always get these kind of like uh, absurd stories about people in in you know in war and all of that. But this is a little bit hilarious. Like it's well documented story where I think it was the uh, Indo-Pak War, and they were stationed. Uh, you know, details are unimportant, but essentially there was a small group um, left behind while the rest of the army retreated because they knew there was an advance coming and they could not hold that position. They were supposed to send back up in the morning again to see if they could reinforce that point. When the backup got back there in the morning, they found three of the Gurkha regiment alive and um, 
The rest of them all died, you know, casualties on both sides, but they were naked and they had their boots in hand and they were beating other soldiers with boots. Like, that is crazy, but it's documented and fact. But to get to a point where you've ta literally taken off all your clothes and you're going around beating people with footwear, that is insane, but also very Batman. <laughs> So we should expect naked Batman in the next issue. Just boots, yeah. only pretty, cow. Pretty, pretty sure we've just gone through the Ivan Reese pages with naked Batman on them. So, <laughs> see, well, first of all, make sure that uh, Mr. Reese does not draw the Batwang because you might get in trouble. Yeah, um, yeah. we've but, got. Yeah, yeah, no, we've got. I, I think at this point, uh, yeah, DC have uh, structures in place to prevent that sort of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we I already went through issue. that once, <laughs> but. But I, I love that, and I think that that is, that is the essence of Batman. I'm waiting for the issue in which Batman and Ra's al Ghul fight nude in the sands, in the desert. I'm waiting for that. But, that boot. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love the fact that with you, every issue of Detective is like, what character is going to appear next, and what's Rom's perspective on them? You know, we've seen Talia. You know, and I've enjoyed a lot, you know, your writing of Talia al Ghul. You know, we mm. saw Mr. Freeze. It was really cool to see Mr. Freeze. Um, I loved that. The story that Talia tells Batman that features Ra's al Ghul and, and, yep. and some of, you know, all fantastic in every issue, not every issue, but like, you know, throughout the whole entire run, it's been like that. Hey, here's Mr. Freeze. This is Ram V's Mr. Freeze, which yep. I think goes back to what you were talking about before, where it's like you could just do, you know, what everybody else does with these characters, or you could add your own flair and flavor to it. And I think that's what makes a run. Yeah, so I, and I think, you know, to to come back to this, let the the let him cook comment. <laughs> it, um all of the characters you've seen so far, they're all there for a reason. And so they will all have a role to play as this run comes, you know, full circle, if you will. So Freeze has a role to play, Two-Face has a role to play. And there's a reason I've left them with the status quos that they've got so far. Yes. Um, and so once all of that comes back, you will, like, very early on when we were talking about this, um, I think Two-Face is probably, from an emotional point of view, the most important character in this run. Um, because the question we've asked with Two-Face so far is like, is it possible to save someone if you have to throw away half of them? Mm. Um, can, you, can you really say you've saved someone if you threw away half of them? Um, and so we return to this question of Gotham then. Can you really say you've saved Gotham if you've had to throw away half of it? Um, and I think part of the reason why Batman faces this unwinnable battle is he's trying to save all of Gotham, whereas it would take two minutes for someone to come in and say, cool, I'll just save the nice parts and, and you know, to hell with the parts that I don't like. Um, and in that, I think... From a from a philosophical point, uh, there's something very important to say about Batman. Why is he a, why is he a vigilante? I think we've forgotten what that means. You're not supposed to reinforce the status quo. You're not supposed to have statues. Not supposed to have burger joints named after you or 
tiffin boxes, not supposed to have your emblem up in the sky. You're a vigilante because the system is supposed to hate you, technically. Um, and we've seen, to my mind, in previous runs of Batman, who is potentially a centrist, potentially an isolationist centrist. Um, whereas I want to see... I want to see a revolutionary Batman. A Batman who says, no, anyone, anyone who um whose voice is not being heard, even if they are quote unquote bad, deserve to have someone standing by and saying, No, this person has a right to speak. This person has rights, this person has they belong here. Um which I don't think we've seen in a run yet. And so yeah, hopefully it'll be a fun time getting there. It's like that um, – there's a bit in the animated series, not to blow your spot here, but there's a bit in the animated series where uh, Batman buys Harley Quinn a dress because she liked it. Yeah. And he says everybody had a bad day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't think we've seen that idea explored enough with Batman. Yeah, hell yeah. Hell yeah. So. What do you say to people, or what's your perspective, I guess, on the idea that people have that Batman is reinforcing the you know police state um, that disenfranchises people and keeps people down, um, and that he's not actually an agent of change and freedom for Gotham citizens, and that he should invest his money into the police force, or, or not the police force, but like you know, getting people therapy and better housing and killing ho or ending homelessness and all that good stuff instead so of being the bad. first part of that question is literally what we're investigating with this one, right? We're saying, have you really because literally had characters ask him this? I think Freeze asked him this that you fight for to preserve a vision of Gotham that only exists in your head night after night. So have you really changed anything or are you just trying to preserve this idea of Gotham that doesn't even exist anymore? Um, so in that freezes questioning whether Bruce is just nostalgia and not really change, um, which I think is an interesting question to ask. And people, you know, I've had people question this idea of like, how are you a hero if you keep doing the same thing and then every Wednesday there's another you know, villain taking over Gotham. Like, how have you changed anything? Uh, if anything, there are more villains now in Gotham because of Batman that have been made in his shadow. So we'll see that question come up. But I don't agree with this answer of like, oh, so you just need to invest your money and, and then things will all be fine. Um, like to that, I always want to ask, like, give me an example of a billionaire who came in with like tons of money, invested it into a place and made everything great and okay. No, look at what happened with Elon. Look at what happened with, yeah, I could give you a billion examples of people going, I'm going to buy this thing with lots of money, flood a lot of money, Chelsea, football club, flood a lot of money into it and, and turn it into this amazing thing. And it never works because money doesn't care about good people or bad people. Money only perpetuates, cares about perpetuating itself. It is a agent of profit not an agent of change um and so i think 
money is an instrument just as you know the batmobile is an instrument just as brains and bronze are an instrument what really matters is whether you come in with an idea an ideology a philosophy that works like people with strong ideas change things uh yes they need money yes they need resources all of those things but it takes a will it's like the police state doesn't exist because nobody has money to dismantle it. It exists because there's too much will to be a police state within most developed first world economies. They don't want poor people to have the same experience of living in a society as they want rich and franchised powerful people to do. And this has existed since before the French Revolution. So... There have been a lot of people who made a lot of money who could have invested a lot of money into society. Money doesn't solve problems, uh, ideas, and and having the will to say, having the, on some level, morality to say, I'm going to fix things, I'm going to make things better. That's what solves things. And I think to your point, um, money doesn't win championships because, you know, Chelsea is they're struggling out there. So I, I get it. I, I respect the footy comment. <laughs> Um, so a lot of things have, have happened, uh, in the last few years. And I was, I was really curious to get your opinion on how the world has changed, uh, since COVID, because obviously that has nothing to do with comics, but you're a thoughtful person who, you know, thinks a lot about things outside of comics and then your thoughts become comics. So in your opinion, how have things changed in this world over the last two, three years? And do you feel like we are on a good trajectory? I mean, that's a three-hour question if I ever heard one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and answer it in two minutes. No, I'm just kidding. I mean... Okay, I'll, I'll limit it to, to things that I'm preoccupied with at, yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I'm preoccupied with the ideas of truth and falsehoods in societies, right? Like, we all know that truth is subjective. And yet we've lived in societies that could agree upon a consensus of truth. Like, yes, gravity exists. Like yes, apples will fall from trees downward if they if they. And there have always been outliers. There have always been conspiracy theories, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think anyone foresaw, as a consequence of greater communication between people, uh, as a consequence of faster information generation. Um, I think most communications experts only saw information being generated as relevant and truthful information. Whereas I think the fact, and this has become more apparent post-COVID, is that the inf vast majority of information generated is trash and untrue. <laughs> uh, and the vast majority of information, therefore, you know, going back to Alan Moore's idea of culture is boiling and therefore information doubles every every xyz number of years or our ability to generate information so really what we're saying is our ability to generate irrelevant trash is doubling um every every 
XYZ number of years. Uh, and then what that's going to create is people who go, my version of the truth is fine because I can find enough trash to back it up. Um, how is my, prove to me that your trash is better than my trash is, is the conversation we are having right now. Uh, is the conversation we're having as a world and as a society right now. Um, you know, everyone, I, I live in, I live in the UK, so I can hear everyone around me going, well, of course the war in Ukraine is bad. Of course we should support Ukraine. Of course Russia is doing a bad thing. But if you ask the same questions in India, you will get completely different answers because India has the history of US military interference in the area over, over the past few decades. And there's enough information generated for them to believe entirely differently than the people in the UK. Uh, and they're not doing it because they are ideologues that are opposed to whatever Ukraine or opposed to America. No, they're doing it because they genuinely think that that's the truth of the world. Uh, and I think that is going to become even more interesting, even more dangerous, potentially, as AI becomes involved. Um, we're going to generate even more information. Uh, it's going to be even more trashy, but it's going to have the veneer of being entirely truthful because now, you know, your scam emails are not going to have spelling mistakes. Your scam emails are not going to spell prince wrong when they say they're a Nigerian prince. Um, your scam emails are going to be in perfect English, believable, even emotionally, perhaps have all the hooks. Um, and that's where we're going and and so what is what is i think the world is trying to discern its idea of truth and trying to see how to preserve a consensus on truth uh and yeah yeah i think it's i think it's fascinating where that's going to go um or even you know do we need a consensus on truth or or should we should we be all should we all be allowed to believe whatever the hell we want to believe and let the consequences decide which would be the free market way of going about things <laughs> that is a that is a fascinating answer and it's exactly what i was hoping so thank you you said you said two words there that really stuck with me and those were ai and trash and um we have someone on this podcast right now actually who is a big proponent of AI and AI art. And so I thought, you know, we would just turn the floor over to Marco <laughs> and get Marco's take <laughs> on. Did you, see, did you guys see that bus <laughs> that Marco just went under? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I got pushed straight into the show. I love it so much. Why don't Why don't you talk about that? Talk about it, Marco. Tell Rom your thoughts about AI art. I, I, I think I, uh, I largely agree on just the, like where we're at from a truth perspective. It's coming in and being processed as subjectivity. And that therein, my subjective experience therein is uh, a, a validation for truth. Um, and uh, on the AI front, I think you're right that we're gonna continue to produce believable content, stuff that is that are blatant lies. Um, and for me, it, it sort of comes down to like fine tuning the machinery, fine tuning, fine tuning those gears. Just like how do you how do you get to the point where 
the the outcomes align with some good that we want in the world where right now it's sort of just you know free reign uh oh no absolutely can... i'm not saying everything ai is going to generate is going to be bad uh i think ai is going to generate whatever it generates at absolutely high quantity and high quality the good or bad as with the batman and his money argument depends entirely on us and our yeah. track record in that matter is not very good <laughs> and fair enough and and uh i get uh, I get roasted on the podcast when I when I see the the ultimate good that I think will come out of things like AI art. I think at the moment the big struggle is the legislative stance, the coming in at like how to properly provide royalties or, or compensation for the art that has been uh, ingested Stolen. and, oh. and <laughs> modeled on, right? Like. Stolen. <laughs> Ingested, Let's be honest. Yeah. Ingested and modeled. I, I ingest with... a lot at the self checkout at Target. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I agree that it doesn't mean that it's inherently wrong. And and I think that in the same way as you have new technologies to come in and be introduced to art, it, for me in, in my mind it's like an an artist on the precipice of Photoshop coming on. If you don't learn how to use the tool, whether or not you agree with it, you're going to be suffering artistically in the long run. And as much as that's the... not true, by the way, at all. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think artists need to know how to use Photoshop at all. What you're talking about is yep. a commercially successful artist whose commercial success depends on creating lots of paying art every week, every day. Um, but that's not true of all artists. There are artists who will sit down once in a few months and paint a watercolor picture on a on a on a A4 sheet and put that out and it'll sell for millions. If like James Jean doesn't need to know how to use Photoshop anymore. Um he does, different matter. But um this goes back to the idea of what do we want to call art? And and yeah, I've had these conversations with people before. Um and I was having a conversation with someone who worked on generative AI. And I think it's important to define what we what we call art and what we call content, right? Um, like if I go out and take a take a photograph of the street outside my art, uh, outside my house, like I'm not I'm not necessarily generating a photograph that you could put up in a museum and say, hey, this is art. It has to do something more. It has to do something more than just exist, right? Otherwise, I could be walking down Broadway in New York, just going click, 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 all the way to the end and go like, okay, now I have a museum showing at MoMA. But you don't. And it comes back to this question of subjectivity, right? Why is that not art? It's not that it's not art. The idea is that art is supposed to evoke. It is supposed to generate some kind of a response um but more importantly from the creator's point of view art is supposed to be about expression what am i expressing when i just walk down going click 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 if i am able to put those things together and express maybe human disinterest urban disconnect through doing that and if the work then speaks to you that way then i would have created a successful piece of art the problem is ai has no way of saying I did this because I want to express disinterest. AI has no way of going, I did this because I liked the, the way the sunlight looked out of my window in the morning. AI has no way of deciding on content because it felt a certain way. 
the only way to do that with AI is to tell it what to draw, right? At that point, you're generating content because really there is no artist involved. Like if AI had painted the Sistine Chapel, right? Would you say then that the Pope was the artist because he went to AI and was like, I want you to paint this on my roof. Clearly he's not the artist. And if AI is just doing the Sistine Chapel and it's basically doing that borrowed off of, you know, 100, 200 works of art created by other artists, it hasn't figured out how to use a brushstroke. It doesn't feel uh, its devotion when it's painting God on that ceiling. Um, and so I've, I've failed to find the artist there either. So how have you generated art without having an artist in the equation? The answer is you've generated content. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and I think that's where I come down on uh, disagreeing, where I think insofar as the human is involved, the the ideation comes from a place that can be artful and the the skill involved to produce the art, I think can can vary amongst people like I can imagine. I don't, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive, the idea and the skill, right? So I'll give you an example. Uh, when Otomo was drawing um, Akira uh, and he was doing a piece for uh, for the animated um, thing, that you know that famous scene, the explosion happens. It's this black dome that covers everything. Famously, he was sitting there drawing like a billion lines to make that thing perfectly black. Right, he's, he's and taking then... off his headphones. Sorry, he doesn't off. want to listen. He's <laughs> taking off, off his headphones. It popped off. Wait, we're already at that part of the argument. No, it's <laughs> much later. It popped off. Um, so he was drawing like these billions of lines to make this perfectly black dome where the explosion had happened, and one of his assistants came in and went like, "Why do you always do that? Why not just?" Fill it with the black because no one is going to tell the difference when it makes it on screen. And Otomo looks to him and apparently says, there are a billion people dying underneath that thing. Like it is a question of life and death. And then turns around to his paper and continues marking every single line. Now, the assistant is absolutely right. People may or may not see uh, that a billion lines were drawn. People who don't see it it doesn't matter to them because they're going to consume that anyway. But people who don't see it or even like I couldn't see it, but I know it and it makes a difference to me, right? I am now being deprived of an artist's vision on something. Like his skill, there's no skill involved in making something perfectly black by me drawing a billion lines. The skill is not in drawing the line. The skill is in connecting his idea of a million people dying underneath that dome with the fact that he needs to do it with these billion lines. That's what makes it artistic. So it's not that learning to make the perfect brushstroke is what makes it artistic. The, I mean, look at look at Mignola as, a, as an example in comics, right? The guy, the guy could can certainly draw every single muscle, every single hair strand. And then there was a time where he was drawing Hellboy people were complaining like what is this it looks so minimalistic i don't see any no you don't get it he is trying to see if he can express character and emotion just using two lines instead of 15 
And in that effort lies the art. It does not lie in drawing the two lines or drawing the 15 lines. Yes, that can be learned and that is skilled and that is craft. And you could absolutely say, uh, you know, someone using a digital tool for that, for that matter, like, are they really expressing every single brushstroke? Well, maybe not. Maybe they're, maybe they're programming their digital tool to draw something. But even in that act of programming, there is art. But the moment you leave the creation aspect to something else, and all you're doing is have the idea in your head, so therefore you typed it out as words, ideas are worthless. Even as a, even as a writer, ideas are worthless. Everything is in the execution. And the worst part of AI art is it leaves the execution to someone else. Wow. Yeah. Marco's got a real parliament of gears type of mindset on uh... <laughs> industry. I mean, but, but this is uh, in the one case in, in, in which I completely agree with you is that it will become ubiquitous and part of life as we go on because we live in a world built for efficiency, not for art. Um, but it would be a pity to live in a very efficient, artless world. Hmm. Uh, Sean, you're muted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. thank you. I said uh, you distilled those ideas very well, Rom. Thank you for that. You Appreciate that. you putting Marco in his place because he needs that. <laughs> That's what Sean um, wanted. That's why. I that's exactly yeah, what I wanted, I know. and you know. I mean, that, if actually. I'd given you the three-hour version, <laughs> there would have definitely been a time where all the headphones came off. <laughs> Not mine. I'm here for yeah, it. Same. Um, I'll I'll take my phone to the bathroom if I got to use the bathroom. I'll listen to you live. I'm not. Sean, I don't Sean, want to miss TOS word. terms and conditions. Come on. Oh, uh, yeah. Jesus! All right, you're right. We're learning that one the hard off. way on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we do have a, a whole bunch of listener questions to get to, and we want to respect your time. I, I had one last question that I personally wanted to get to, um, and it involves something that you actually said the last time that you joined us. And I have the quote here because I thought it was fascinating. We were discussing the idea that a lot of stories uh, being told, especially in the West, are very similar, and that's because, you know, here we have a very specific idea about what stories are and you talked about how people say oh all the stories have been told and and you said well not if you look outside of your bubble sure. and so um i i want to read this quote and then this will inform the question so this is what you said i think that kind of understanding and approach to diversity in stories it's okay to present a different view of history than what is the accepted norm I think that kind of stuff will take time, but hopefully there's thoughtful and willful pushing into that direction because it's only at that point that we'll start getting like we're truly learning something new about humanity. Each time I read one of these things, and I think that was part of the joy of reading comics, wasn't it? Even the old classic stuff was showing you things you never considered before, and I'm not sure we're still doing that. That's something that... I heard again now in listening to it, preparing for this, and it really, really hit. Even the old classic stuff was showing you things you've never considered before, and I'm not sure we're still doing that. That, to me, is pretty damnable on the stories that we're seeing being told. Now, obviously, people are enjoying them, and you know, there's no shortage of people loving the stories that they're consuming. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're transforming us. You said earlier that there have been lots of runs on Batman and your goal was to do something different. 
Do you believe still, as you did, you know, two or three years ago at this point, that we're not seeing that or we're not doing that? Are you still questioning whether or not we're doing that? Do you think that that's lost in comics to do things that are transformative and to take these characters and be different or to take the medium itself and do and be different? Do you still do you still feel that way or have you expanded on those thoughts? Um. I think the vast majority of stuff that is being made is still very conveyor belt or in the middle. Hey, I'm going to put this out. Um, and and I don't mean that in terms of the ambition. I think the ambition is there to do different things, new things. But I also think that comics especially suffers from this idea of people thinking that the idea is the thing that that makes the comic. So if I have an idea of doing this cool thing, that's good enough. Um, but it's not because the the joy of a comic, the transformative nature of art is in its execution. Yeah, to go back to what we were saying before. Um, and I can maybe count on, on one, maybe two, two hands, the number of books that I would have said I've read over the past, you know, five or ten years, that that are trying to do something in their execution that is that is transformative, like Twentieth Century Men, um, mm. the Denise Campbell, um, Stephen Morian comic, is trying to do something different. Um, uh, uh, Seasons Have Teeth, Dan Waters now is trying Love to do it. something different. Uh, and and so, um, yeah, I just want to see that kind of ambition, and I find it, I find it odd that, like, I I'm influenced by Grant Morrison, but I just I don't want to do what Grant Morrison did. That's not influence. That's just emulation. Um, there's so many writers coming into comics especially recently that are like oh, I want to do Vertigo I want to do Grant Morrison I want to do Alan Moore I want to do and I think that's cool I think that's very important because that's exactly how I came into comics uh, I want I got into comics wanting to emulate all of those but you have to try and do something more you can't take Grant Morrison's eccentricities and go like okay I'm going to give you a run of a run of the mill uh, formulaic this works because I've seen a, this done a million times in every TV show I've ever watched kind of comic with that no then then you have not understood Grant Morrison at all like the reason Morrison is amazing is because half of their comics you you read and you're like what what was that and that's because they're trying to do something different um, and it's okay we have to I think that's the conversation that most creative industries need to have. It's okay to try and fail at doing something cool. Um, the problem is, especially with, again, returning to the idea of efficiency, um, the bigger something gets, the more efficient it tries to become. And the more efficient it tries to become, the lesser risks it wants to take. And 
lower risk taking is like the bane of creativity. If you can't take risks, if you like, you can't be a great dancer if you're not willing to fucking fall on your face when you're on stage and, and dancing in front of everyone. Um, and, and the same is true of, of writing and, and art and all of those things. You have to be willing to fall on your face, but it's very it's very different to have to go into a board meeting and explain why you fell on your face. Like artists and writers and, and creators don't have to do that. So that's why you see things when they are smaller, taking more risks and doing interesting creative things. And then people always celebrate like, oh my God, Ari Aster is now being asked to do big budget things. And in my head, I'm always like, no, let him continue. Like, wait for him, do the big budget thing, but don't celebrate that as if inherently is going to get you better work because nine times out of 10, it's not. I see. It's actually why I appreciated the Detective Comics run. Like right off the bat, the cover and the, the new trade dressing for it and everything was like, this is different. This is, and yeah. It's also Detective Comics. So I was like, all right. I appreciate that, especially coming from Big Two, because I didn't really see, I don't see that often. And it was a risk, so, right? Yeah. It was yeah. a risk we took, and it, it paid off in some places, and, and in some places it won't. People, there will be people who absolutely hate this run start to finish, and they will, you know, potentially have not bought all the issues. And, and that's something I don't have to worry about, but then there are editors and there are sales and publishing and marketing. They will worry about it. But that is the nature of the beast. If I start worrying about sales, I have doomed myself into becoming the most mediocre creator that, that I could ever be because that means I will never take any risk and always make some version of the last successful thing I made. Well, if you're an aspiring creator, of which we have many that uh, are listeners of this podcast, I think that you can take what Rom said to the bank um, in a sense that, you know, the best part about your work is you. And if you're not bringing you to it, then there's a lot of other people that can do that. Um, and it's not even necessarily about how good you are. It's about how much you can bring yourself to it. Cause there's a lot of, there's always going to be somebody better than you, right. At whatever it is that you do. Yeah. Um, but they cannot be you. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that has more value. Like, like good is such an ambiguous term, right? Like we're, we're talking, we could be talking about someone who's very skillful, someone who's right. not, but even if you can't, you know, draw a line or you can't string the most beautiful sentences together, if you write the most authentic thing, it will still have more value than the most beautifully crafted piece of writing or art that does nothing outside of what's already been done before yeah it's about telling the truth through your art right um and i think you know creators have to have to be have to feel like they can do that and not worry as you said about the dollars and cents of it you have to like i i think i've told this story before but very early on swamp thing uh no justice league dark as doing these issues and i had a dream sequence in there and for one reason or the other, I think it was a bad time for dream sequences in general in the DC offices. And I got a note back saying that, no dream sequence, please. You have to take this out. And I was like, no, no, no. I want to keep it in there because I'm doing something with it. And they were like, there's no reason for this to exist in this comic because it does nothing for the plot. And I said, yes, you're absolutely right. 
but four issues down the line, when it comes together, it will do something then. And so you have to give me that runway. I'm writing for the fourth issue. I'm not writing this chunk, this dream sequence. I'm writing for the fourth issue, not writing it for this one. Uh, and we went back and forth until there was an email that basically said, you're taking a risk. And uh, no, but there was an email from me that said, look, it's my job to take these risks and it's your job to mitigate them. So we're going to have this friction, but it's necessary and you still need to let me do what I need to do. And they came back with every risk has a reward, but there's also a chance of failure. And if you fail, there might not be another opportunity um, to which I said, and I have the email in one line, at least I will die by my own sword. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it turns out the dream sequences is probably because they were trying to relaunch the Sandman universe, but yeah. And that's how we got the Swamp Thing run that we all, or the, yeah, the, the yeah. Swamp Thing run that yeah. we all love. Yeah. It was literally, uh, the, the dream sequence was uh, Abby Holland having been, uh, she was lost in her own dreams, her own memories, and John had to pull her out. Uh, and and those were the dream sequences that I'm talking about. So very related to, to Swamp Thing. They, they wanted to cut that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, pertinent now. but but i mean it's it's really hard to you have to trust your creators as well right like yes they were absolutely right if you read those four pages by themselves in that issue there was no plausible reason for them to be there but, but that's art right like you my expectation is that the reader's going to look at it and going to have that same reaction like why the hell is this here they're going to do it again why the hell is this here they're going to do it again why the... and then issue four when they read it and it all comes together it's like Oh, that's what I've been reading. It's such a rewarding experience yes. to, to have gone through that. Um, but it's very, you have to take a risk. For three issues, you're expecting someone to continue reading something and not know why it's there. Your, your next uh, one sentence email should just be, let me cook. You know Exactly. <laughs> let Rom cook. That's send the a, new hashtag. Just send a picture of me with a chef's hat on. <laughs> Well, Ram, you've been cooking on this podcast. Um, let's let's get let's get let the listeners have their say. Uh, we got some listener comments. People were very very excited for you to be coming back on the show, and and they wanted to uh, ask you a few questions. So, um, Tyler, why don't you why don't you take it away? Uh, go from the top down, or should I pick and choose? Uh, yeah, go from the top down. Okay, so we had a listener, Matt, uh, asked, uh, for a lot of readers, Ram blew up as a creator owned writer with massive acclaim in titles like These Savage Shores and Many Desolate Star. As he takes on more big two work and telling stories with an IP, has that changed your creative process in any way when working uh, when working on your own creations? If so, what positive changes has there been? Um, I want to say yes, but not in any sort of formal way. Uh, but I think all of my creator and projects coming out soon to be announced next couple of months, uh, they're all doing something different with either the medium or the genre or the subject matter that they are uh, preoccupied with. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is as I do more big two work, I am less inclined to do things that feel like I'm just telling another story. Um, like I feel like over the past few years, I've been able to convince myself that Hey, I know how to tell a good story. Um, 
now I think I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, I know how to tell a good story and do it in this way that I think adds a layer as to as to how you experience the story. You know, Radio Apocalypse was maybe one of one of these projects, really. It was step one in that I was thinking, hey, can I encourage people to listen to music while reading my work? And does that change the experience of how you experience the, uh, does that change the experience of reading that work? Um, and I think, I think it does. I mean, unfortunately we didn't do more than two issues of it, but uh, that sort of tandem project that I mentioned before with, uh, with another creative team, I think that's going to be one of those things going like, okay, can I read, two stories and discern three stories without having the writer there next to me holding my hand and telling me what pieces to, to put together. Like, that's an interesting, that's like playing 3D chess with storytelling, right? Like you've got multiple chess pieces on completely different chess boards that you're hoping people will see and get a sort of superimposed image that says something completely extraneous to, to both stories. Like that's an interesting challenge formally as a, as a storyteller, but if I'm able to pull it off, like legitimately, I don't think that's been done in comics. Like that excites me now. Um, otherwise, you know, from from without that piece, it's a cool detective story. Um, it's a it's a guy chasing a serial killer, and we've all seen that before, but not quite this way. Uh, if that if that makes sense. Um, and then I'm doing a book uh, with Philippe uh, Andrade, which will be formally announced soon. It's called Rare Flavors, um, which is a comic about food, which has been done before. Um, but it is a comic with recipes uh, about food, about making a documentary about food. So it's a document about making a documentary about food, which has recipes in it. It's metafictional in, in so many ways. Um, and in doing all of that, I don't leave behind the core tenet of making a story, which is still about human beings, it's about human relationships. And and um, yeah, like food is the first language, right? You may not know what someone else is saying, but you can learn a lot about them through what they eat, what they offer you. So yeah, I think there's something cool there as well, uh, which brings in things from outside the medium. So uh, that's a very long-winded answer to say that's how that's changed what I want to do with my creator and stuff. Oh, sure. Um, we had a, a Tom account. He asked, uh, are there musicians or artists in other fields that inspire you, and how do you channel or translate that inspiration into your work? Um, yes, lots of them. Uh, uh, music is like a really huge inspiration for me in terms of my writing um largely it tends to be atmospheric uh not in that i'm very influenced by any any one person's particular approach um but there are also those uh, so tool um and the endless innovation of that entire band uh, and all their creatives pretty much um and the way they approach their music it's layered there's again the most tool thing which I think I love doing in all of my work is uh, the song Lateralis is set to the Fibonacci sequence uh, entirely. Uh, and like that shit, like no one 
when you're listening to it for the first time goes like, oh yes, I'm counting all the syllables and I see it. But when you discover it, there's so much joy. And I've shown it to 10 different people who had no idea that they, this had been done in the Fibonacci. Uh, so that kind of layered, there's a message within the message for those who can see it, um, is an approach that I probably take from Tool. Um, I've been watching David Lynch documentary, um, The Art of David Lynch, I think it's called, Life and Art, something like that. Um, so yeah, I, I take inspiration from a lot of uh, creators and other mediums. Um, I saw a very silly comment about Rothko, which sent me uh, down a rabbit hole about looking at why why is Rothko important? The guy just draws rectangles on canvas. Why is he important? And I wish sometimes when people come out and say things like, oh, it's just Rothko is just like rectangles on a canvas. Why is he important? Like, just Google that question before you decide to like spout it out in front of a million people. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, I've been looking at a lot of old Rothko work and, and again, the idea of texture, the idea of evoking responses through persistence of simple shapes. Yeah, all, all very exciting. Mondrian as well. Uh, someone did AI replication of Mondrian and I was like, you're missing the point. Um, when I was researching blue and green, I found a YouTube video of this jazz artist picking up a Mondrian painting, which was called uh, Brooklyn Boogie Woogie. Um, and he says, you don't understand. This thing is actually structured in the in the notation for a Boogie Woogie song. Like if you pick the small squares and the big squares and you treat the intersections as musical notations, you can play the Piet Mondrian painting. And wow. AI, doesn't, AI doesn't know that. So it's just created a bunch of squares and rectangles. So... Yeah, wow. stuff like that, it, I always find really inspiring. So last time you said you love The Wire, and that was an inspiration to some degree for some elements of Catwoman. This yeah. time you're telling me that you love and and are inspired by Tool, which is my favorite band, and The Wire, my favorite show. So I don't know what you're, what you're angling at here, but every time you come on and you bring up things that I absolutely adore. So <laughs> sounds, Yeah, sounds I mean, like... but that's why that's why people connect with, yeah. with the work, right? Like Someone who hates Tool is probably not going to connect with a lot of my work. That, that's reasonable. <laughs> uh, Kel, why don't you handle the next one? Yeah, sure. So this is the uh, another question from Atomic Hound. What's up, Hound? Uh, the lead and second stories in Detective are so tight in terms of plot, even with Cy Spurrier writing the backup. What have you done to ensure that alignment, and how much joy does it bring to does it bring you to see it play out? Yeah, like this was based off of my experience with the Justice League Dark backups that I did um, with the Justice, Justice League book. Um, and I always got the sense that you were essentially asking people to read a story. And in the time that they should be reacting to that story, you're suddenly asking them to read a completely different story. So instead of saying, I don't like backups, I said, okay, cool. What if the backup is meant to be read in the time where you're reacting to the main story? So with Detective, you read the main story, you're taking away something from that, and then you read the backup, which is now being read in context of everything you're taking away from the main story. For example, in the most recent issue of Detective, uh, you've finally seen Batman and, and Arzen kind of in opposition go at it, if you will. Uh, and 
you know, pe people were like, oh, like, I love the organs, but I, I don't know anything about a lot of them. I don't have the background story. But at this moment in the backup, you get Arzen's background, which is actually quite sympathetic to him in a lot of ways. And so at the moment where you're going, oh, Batman is fighting the big bad villain, all of a sudden you're going, wait, is the villain all that bad? Um, and I think that is super interesting. And that's why it feels tight, even though the backup and the, and the main story have never done the same plot. Uh, they've always orbited around each other. And I think that's that's really cool to do because the whole thing feels like it belongs together then. Yeah, that rules. Frick. Um, do you know, will that, uh, will it be collected like that? Do you know? Yeah, I think the intention is to collect all the backups in place as they mm. are instead of putting them oh, all at one end. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Marco, take the next one. Yeah, we're halfway through these. Uh, from Nihilus, what have you learned about writing or the comic industry that you wish you knew ahead of time? Uh, what have I learned about? I mean, about comic industry, I'll tackle the easier answer. I wish <laughs> I knew, like, the the contract stuff. I wish I knew, um, yeah, I wish I knew just how much uh, work there is to do behind a creator own book in terms of logistics, reaching out to retailers, sales, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I wish I knew all that beforehand because I would have done what I'm doing now, which is get people who are much better than me at doing those things to do them for me, um, which is a, which is a lovely thing to be able to do. Um, in terms of my writing, I don't really look at it as learning something because it's a constantly fluid uh, changing process, right? Um, like, how do you learn something about art? Because it insinuates there is some level of having attained full learningness to where like you have nothing left to learn. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think, I don't think I think of writing or art that way. Uh, I think my writing has certainly changed, and you can tell from reading the first story I did to the stories I do now. Um, the most valuable thing is to trust myself, I suppose. Um, a lot of things I've done that I've felt like no one's going to like this because I've done a bad job, um, because I'm second-guessing and critical about myself. And then it comes out, and either people don't notice that I've done it at all, or people are like, I love this. And I'm like, always like, okay, okay, cool. It wasn't, it wasn't the end of the world. So trust yourself. I wanted to say that Nihilus. Oh, sorry, sorry, guys. Go uh, I'm going to have to take a 30 second break just to go open the door downstairs. No problem. No problem. Uh, so while, while Ram is gone, uh, as he takes his quick break, I did want to say, you know, if you are on the fence about buying, any of Rom's books that we've discussed, uh, you definitely should. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, like, no, you know, someone made a joke about blowing smoke or whatever. No smoke. Carnage is actually fucking awesome. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> lie about that. Like, yeah, like, I, don't <laughs> I would clown to. on it. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to. Yeah. Bro, I uh, haven't been reading Detective, and I liked the first issue we read on the show. Yeah, yeah. I need to finish it and I need to finish it all right now or I'm going to die. <laughs> well, well worth it. Uh, definitely. I think it, it reads really well as well collected. And um, I've been catching up on the, 
Infinite app, and I think it flows so, so good. It does work better in chunks, I feel. Yeah, I think um, so. And I think, I think, but that goes back to what Rom said about the fact that a lot of his work gets, you know, people don't like it up front, and then it's like, holy shit, this was so awesome. When you go out and buy Carnage in that way, or you buy Detective in that way, or Venom, you're gonna you're gonna get it all right there. So you're gonna be able to go, okay, this is interesting. And then by the time your read through is done, by the time you're done sitting there binging it, you're like, holy shit, I don't want to put this down. And that's the idea. So you absolutely should go out and buy these books. Yeah, there are things in other mediums that do that as well, right? Like I could watch um like person of interest one of my favorite sort of procedural shows if you will every episode is similarly engaging and it works in a certain way but i'm a bigger fan of the wire than i am a person of interest and you know when you start a new season of the wire you're not going to get things popping off in the first three four episodes the first couple of episodes might not even touch on the primary conflict that's going to that's going to wow you by the end of the season. And you give it that trust because A, the execution of every episode is phenomenal. The characters are worth watching in themselves. Like I could watch McNulty and 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 Bunk, you know, chat with each other for 20 minutes and have it not go anywhere and it would be fine. I think the weird part is this expectation that everything has to go somewhere. Mm. It doesn't, you know, it really doesn't. And there's no need for every bit of content to, to stumble into the next plot point or the next sort of big revelation that you're supposed to get. It's this idea that, that, and, and I feel like, you can coach yourself into reading certain kinds of things and then expect to read only those kinds of things um, everywhere else. Like I had a friend who read Murakami and was like, I can't read this guy because he's all over the place because there's no tightness of plot. There's just stuff happening and it, and it didn't work for me. And I went like, that's his whole point. His whole point is stuff happens mm. and it makes you feel a certain way at the end. And all I had to do was ask him, like, why does it all have to like tie into one big climactic ending? Yeah. There's no logical reason why it should. If a story is, we all agree, a piece of art and it's supposed to make you feel a certain way, as long as it makes you feel, it's fine. Hmm. I love that. Can I ask a question attached to that? And you yeah. may have just answered the question, but what is your perspective on what Stan Lee used to say about the the idiom of like every comic should be someone's first? I might have agreed at that point in time, but but now it just while I agree with the sentiment is everyone should be able to pick up a book and read it and not be completely lost. But then that precludes the idea that you could ever have a piece of story that's 20 issues long and only fulfills you if you read the entire thing. Um, and I think that's a travesty, right? Like, why would you lock out things like that? Um, the other thing that I always run up against is no one's picking up Detective 1073 and go like, my first comic, I'm going to read it from here. 
Um, and that is part of, frankly, like that's part of the difficulty that the American comic book industry has to has to deal with and mitigate that you can't tell readers that, hey, start here because that line falls flat when you say start with issue 976 of something. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's a, that's a format question. And if I were so inclined to be more interested in that than I am, then I might change things with that, but it's not my, it's not my prerogative. I come here, I write my 30 issues uh, of detective story. And every time someone says, where should I start? I go 1062. <laughs> okay. Um, that's hilarious. I also think it's worth acknowledging the uh the way that comics were, the way the industry was when Stan Lee said that, whereby you still had um, you know, the the uh what's the word I'm looking for? The uh oh my goodness, not the were, direct I mean they were primarily episodic. They were yeah. Things you you read and they were mostly one and done's like, and and don't get me wrong, those stories exist even today, but I don't think any of the ongoing runs do that anymore, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go back and read, um, Ellison Hellblazer, they were all one shots. Um, but then I don't think you could read Delano and go like, okay, every single issue uh was completely fulfilling and made sense to me no delano's stories worked over three four five issues same for same for azarello um freezes over works over three or four issues it doesn't work as as single issues but like if if i'm a kid in 1971 right the likelihood that i'm getting it well the at that time i'm pretty sure the only place you could get a comic was you know a newsstand a grocery store uh you know, a drugstore, things like that, right? So yeah. in that case, you might not have even ever seen a comic before in your life. And the next time your dad says or your mom says, yeah, we'll get you this comic book, could be five issues down the line from the Spider-Man issue that you read. So in that context, the yeah. books kind of have to work, whether yeah. you read 71 and then the next one you read was 76, it has to work. Whereas now... If you go to a comic book store, which is most likely where you're getting your comics in 2023, and you buy Detective Comics 1072, you can literally, from that moment you get home, go on the internet and da- digitally download off of you know whatever wherever yeah. it is you buy your books the entire Rom V run to this point. Right, and and to add to that point, I think even the idea of the first comic has changed. Right, like. I could be wrong, but I think the number of people whose first comic was a contained graphic novel or like a whole run or a whole book is probably a lot more than the number of people whose first comic was a pickup on a Wednesday that was given to them by someone else, right? Um, And I'm talking about people who were given a comic who don't usually read comics and then picked it up and loved it and started reading from there. So I think... I imagine like my first obviously my first comic was not one of these it was actually like reading newspaper strips in India but my first comic that made me want to be involved in comics was Sandman volume one at a time where most of the volumes of Sandman were already out as a collection 
So right. I'm coming to it from the context of someone who has had never read a full run before then at all. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The nature of, of the way people consume comics has changed and our access has changed as well. Um, uh, Marco, why don't you take the next question? Yeah, uh, from Dan Trudeau. Uh, is there a character you didn't care for until you had to write for them? All of them? <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew Even it. my boy Swamp Thing? <laughs> no, d don't get me wrong. I love all of them, but I don't really care. Like, I, my brain just doesn't work that way. I don't, I'm not a fan of any of the characters. I'm not like, it doesn't. Yeah, if you tell me like, hey, you're writing Batman, I go like, oh, cool, I'm writing Batman. But I don't then go back and like open up my bat altar and remove all of the collections of Batman that I've got. And I go like, oh my God, I'm finally writing. Just doesn't, brain doesn't work that way. <laughs> like, yes. I, I love characters at the end of reading books and then... I forget about them by the time I've started like reading the next book. Mm. Um, so yeah, quite the opposite. I've actually like had ideas for stories and then went like literally Googled hey DC obscure character list and gone like, which one of these characters can I tell this story with? And then found a character that I can tell that story with and, and went... <laughs> Oh my God, this character is so interesting. I love it. I'm going to pitch this. So, you know, next couple of years, hopefully you'll see some obscure character reinvention pitches for me. That turned out, that came out that way, that that I had the idea for the story first and and then went and found a character that I, I had no idea even existed, but then read it and then went, oh, this is actually a really, really cool character that that I can do some interesting things with. All right, so I expect uh, Ram V's arm fell off boy coming from DC. Uh, Condiment King. Fragman. <laughs> <laughs> so um, really quick, it, listeners, I did put um, Amazon links to um, Carnage and Detective Comics. So if you guys, uh, the hardcover for Detective Comics, which is out uh, August 15th, so if you guys want to pick those up, uh, the links are in the live stream chat. Um, we do get a bit of a kickback if you choose to get them that way. Get them however you get them. You know, just just get the books. Um, Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Tyler, take the next one. Yeah, so Joel Justice asks, what comics in the last five years have made you say, heck yeah, comics are awesome? I know you mentioned uh, uh, Season Tap Teeth you know, previously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... I mean, the biggest one was probably uh, experiencing HOXPOX when it came out. Yes. Um, yeah. That 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 I, that definitely was the moment where I was like, "Hell yeah, comics!" Yeah, cool. Because <laughs> um, it because it did it took advantage of the medium and it said we're gonna do things that are that you can only do with comics. Um, uh, the other the other moment was reading some of Jesse Lonergan's stuff. I don't know if if you guys have uh, read his work, but he did a couple of books at Image, uh, and he draws stuff that is unlike anything anyone else draws uh, in comics. And again, 
it's very comics. So I, I read that and I went like, all right, comics, this guy's doing something cool. Because um, it's what I love about comics, right? It's a, it's such a low um, initial investment medium uh, in that really all it takes is for you to have a pen, pencil, paper, words in your head, idea in your head. You can even Xerox copy it, put it together. And I think just some of Jesse's original work started out that way as well. The fact that you can still do that in 2023 and do cool shit. Like I was at MCM last weekend. I met Gilbert Hernandez and mm. I exp explained to him while he very patiently listened, wondering if I was some weird guy talking to him. Um, I was like, I read your entire run. But I didn't know Love and Rockets was a thing when I read it. The reason I read it was I was doing a part-time job with a with a digital comics app based out of the UK. Um, and my job was the most mind-numbingly boring job on the planet. But I got to read a lot of comics while doing it, which was to draw perfect rectangles around every panel in a page on a PDF. Because that's how you get your guided view. That's hey. how it works. Um, so that was my job. And I read all of Love and Rockets while painfully drawing a rectangle around every panel. Um, but again, like, it's not something that came out over the past five or 10 years, but reading Love and Rockets kind of made me go like, shit, yeah, this is comics, man. This is like proper, proper comics, even though it wasn't doing any mind-bending stuff it wasn't doing superhero stuff it was yeah it was just beautifully made doing the human stuff you know yeah yeah, yeah. sometimes the mind-bending gravity-defying stuff as well yeah thanks to thanks to Jaime <laughs> mm -hmm. Kale, tackle the last question sure this one is from oh you're gonna hate me <laughs> you want me to do it because who shit Raja yeah. oh yeah okay uh, firstly, as a fellow Indian who shares the name Ram, I want to say you're an awesome writer and keep on doing the good work with more bangers like The Swamp Thing, JL Dark, Detective, and especially with The Vigil. Who are your major influences for your writing style? Uh, in comics, um, probably take a lot from uh, that sort of 80s vertigo stable um more Morrison, Gaiman, Ellis, Ennis, um, Azarello. Uh, 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 yeah, I think that's about it in terms of writers. Um, some of early Jeff Lemire stuff as well. Uh, Underwater Welder. Um, the stuff he did before then as well. Lost Dogs, I think he had done uh, as a top shelf book. Yeah. So... Yeah, I took a lot from from those books. Uh, I took a lot from uh, Mignola's Hellboy run, not necessarily in terms of writing, but in terms of storytelling and comics. Um, I think, I think there is definitely, to my mind, a pre-Mignola way of making comics and a post-Mignola way of making comics. Most comics you see today take more from Mignola's storytelling type of style than the comics that were made before him. There's a different density, just kind of being okay with doing just silent panels one after the other. 
I don't think existed before uh before Hellboy. Um anyway, so uh, sorry, what was the question again? Uh, Just your influences. Yeah. Yeah, these are all my comics influences. Uh outside of comics, uh Paul Oster is a pretty big influence. Uh uh Michael Shabon, uh Murakami, um, and then from the from the sci-fi horror side, probably Ligotti, Lovecraft, um Margaret Atwood, uh, uh, uh um who else? Stanislav Lem, yeah, we could we'll be we'll be here forever. <laughs> um but yeah. Well, hopefully, Kushik, that is a that is a list long enough to say to. Um Ram has been more than gracious with his time. Uh so we are going to let him go. Uh Ram has life to attend to, of course, and many, many comics and other things to to write and busy himself with. So Ram, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate every time you come on here. Um I respect and appreciate the fact that you're not afraid to say what you think. And I think that that's important because the creators, like I said at the top, creators are the minds that we need to be hearing from. And I love the fact that you put it in the books, right? But for those of us who maybe can't quite get it from the books, you come on the podcast and you tell us and we need to hear it. So thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to come here and talk. Uh, I try not to talk about the work much because I'm like, you should be getting it from the books. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I love, I love chatting about stories, creativity, generally where my mind's at. Uh, and yeah, part of the reason I I do, you know, maybe, maybe spill a lot of stuff about the industry is like, I feel like creators should go in knowing what the truth is um and the truth is somewhere usually somewhere in between two narratives so 100 percent uh what do you want to uh, places people can find you uh any plugs you want to lay out oh uh, yeah so yeah i'm on twitter uh mostly uh at the right ram i'm also on instagram on rami writes although if you if you feel brave enough to see pictures of me eating stuff on sunday afternoons then then go there um <laughs> And then uh, I've got a lot of creator-owned stuff coming out. Uh, I should have a Dark Horse book announced soon with Evan Cagle. We'll give her the name name of the book, but um, very exciting stuff. Uh, I don't think the world is ready for Evan Cagle interior art. Uh, in case you're wondering, Evan's the one doing all the covers on Detective. Um, oh, and, yeah, and, and I've got a book that will that will be coming out uh potentially through image uh which is the tandem book that i talked about so it is with um i think i can say this i'm, I'm so the other angle is dan waters oh. uh, and sumit kumar uh, on that book Ooh, and then yeah. my book will be uh me and, and lawrence campbell um who did a lot of bprd stuff in case you're wondering um so yeah so that book should be announced soon and then rare flavors uh coming coming out later this year um the vigil of course is already out and uh first time i've been asked to create completely original characters for dc uh also indian superheroes in the dcu so very excited about that um and kind of tongue-in-cheek excited about 
seeing people's reactions to where issue one started and where issue six ends up. So very excited about it. Oh, we're getting a lot of we love vigil in the chat. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, love the vigil. Love. Um, it was phenomenal. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Next time we have you on, it'll be done and we can dissect the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds um, great. Sounds great. Well, hopefully, so, hopefully there is some talk of getting an extension. So, oh, yeah, yeah. he's been doing that a lot now. So yeah, uh, hopefully yeah. go out and buy the book, go out and buy the vigil. Um, Detective Comics is cool. Carnage is cool. All that stuff is awesome and you should buy it. But books like the vigil need support because that's different, right? Like that's new characters, new locations, a new feel. Um Please support books like that. Put your money where your mouth is. If you really want different stuff, it only happens if your dollars go to it. So support that 150%. Thank you so much, Rom, for being here. Thank we you. appreciate you. Uh, listeners, we will be back momentarily. We're just going to say bye off air, and uh, we will continue with the show.
So that was incredible. Right? Rom My first is... Rom interview. Well, your, yeah, your first. Not, Did not. you know, Tyler, that the first time we interviewed Rom, you actually submitted a question? You were just a listener? No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You asked. I actually have the question. I didn't. I, I, I wanted was to it a smart question it up. No, um, yeah, 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 it, it was it was all right. You said uh, you asked about Rom's specific use of the word the in the title of the swamp. Thing. Oh, okay. So, oh, actually, he, he gave a good answer. I feel like yeah, yeah. The answer you're was welcome. Good. I was yeah, giving yeah. you content even before I was on the show. You're one hundred. You're one hundred percent right, and I appreciate that. Um, yeah, that interview was incredible. Love Rom. Uh, we almost got that was almost two hours, which you know we kind of. You know, went overboard, but it's such a good conversation. And you that's, ask him a question, and you get a world. As yeah, an answer, that's the end know? change that you talk about. You know, when they're like, "Oh, how much time?" Oh, you know, hour and change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the change is, is an additional hour. It's yeah, it's gonna change into two <laughs> yeah. hours. <laughs> yeah. Um. God, I live for stuff like that. Just incredible, yeah. thoughtful responses, and and a fierceness about what is true conviction yeah mm-hmm. yeah um and i think that's rare especially like a lot of creators are people pleasers uh mm-hmm. and they you know they're not always willing to challenge someone and say no actually it's this right or or my belief is is this you know and, and that's that's where the that's where the great stories come from is is the conviction as marco said to be willing to say no i'm challenging the status quo i'm challenging the perceived notions of what truth is. And I'm adding this to the equation. Mm. Love it. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, again, if you guys want to pick up any of the books that we talked about, there are links in the chat right now. We do get a little bit of kickback if you do that. Um, but you should read the books no matter how you get them. They're fantastic. Uh, Ram is a tremendous creator. One of the one of the minds that we need in comics right now. And I, I fucking honestly, I would love to do a two hour interview and not mention comics and just ask questions about other things like his, mm-hmm. his brain. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Atomic Hound says on a scale of one to five, that interview was about 10,000. Thank you so much. Really appreciate over 9,000. Thank you. There it is. <laughs> um, and, and, and we're glad we got everybody's question in that we were able to, obviously, you know, we weren't able to get to absolutely everything. We, we do apologize for that, but like we have our own thoughts. And so the best way to ensure that your question gets answered in a situation like that is to be a part of the patron Patreon, regardless of the tier, if you're supporting us and all you're asking for is a, a question of yours to be asked to a creator that we're lucky enough to interview, it's the least we can do. So um, thank you to everybody that submitted questions for this one. Um, we have a lot of cool stuff coming up. So we're not going to do any news or anything like that today, but tomorrow, Sunday, um, we are putting out our Across the Spider-Verse review. So you will be able to listen to us talk about that. Uh, Tyler, you looked very perplexed. Uh, no, I forgot to do the uh, the, the layout. Uh, to go see the me like, give, give me like five minutes after we, we're, we're done recording. <laughs> like, wait, shit, I didn't see that. Yeah, <laughs> damn it. I just watched the re- the other one, the first one. Whoops. I watched um, Turkish Spider-Man instead. Uh, a couple of weeks from now, so on the 17th, we'll be having a birthday show. Cool. Yes. So my birthday is June 16th, and Tyler's birthday, I believe, is the 18th, no? 19th. You're wrong. The Horrible friend. 
well, you know, I never <laughs> claimed to be your best friend. That's fair. That's fair. I only claim to be a friend. Um, and so, friend. yeah. And anyway, <laughs> dude, this is the only the Hulk only to the my first... Thor. The Hulk to my Thor. Oh, they beat the shit out of each other. Well, you know, it's my friend from work. That's what I was referencing. <laughs> oh, okay. Damn. <laughs> so I'm only a work friend now. I was so going off what that. Kale just said, all right? He's, he's, he's a, he, you're a colleague. Right, 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 right. <laughs> And Sean's the work friend. Slowly Jeez. demoting him further and further. <laughs> wow. Wow. All right. Well, um, so yeah, on the 17th, we will be celebrating both Tyler and I's birthdays, which of course means that we will be bringing up our worst moments from the show and reflecting on them. So oh, oh, if, no. you, if you have... Bad <laughs> takes that Tyler brought up on the show. Come prepared with those. Yeah. For, for if you two got weeks bad out. takes that I have that were from different shows. Yeah, from anything wanna, from, from Discord. Yeah. If you want to find my horrible takes anywhere, let me know. Yeah. You better make sure Matt's in the chat for that. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. oh, listen, I'm in I'm in Matt's DMs. We're gonna be discussing. <sighs> oh, no. I want a whole I want a whole show planned. I want an arc. Based around Tyler's back. How am I going to get the slides ready? <laughs> you don't need to. It's okay. I'll get the slides ready, right, Tyler. Right, okay. It's fine. It's fine. Um, and that could be as bad as when Matt farted into the mic once when we were recording. But um, so that's disgusting. Yeah. Um, hey, that's Matt Murphy. If you're going to do that. At least keep the mic away from your butt. It was but. literally like on his ass and he farted. And he's like, oops. And I'm like, uh, I don't feel like editing. <laughs> I feel like I remember that. Well, I remember that, that episode. That's why that shows in the past. Yeah. <laughs> um, past in, in four weeks, our 450th episode will occur. Ooh. And someone said, oh, you guys should do something for that. Or so, 400th? 450th. I think no? in four weeks, it's also my birthday. Or 350th. Oh, okay. Sorry. There we go. I'm like, hold on a second. Are you counting like at aggregate? Like what's going on? We'll we'll get to that soon. That's how we're gonna get to one thousand. We're gonna combine yeah, we gotta... all of the different <laughs> yeah, yeah. all the book yeah. clubs, all the all the offshoot shit, video game pals. We're gonna put it all together and get to a thousand. No, uh, four weeks from now is Kale's birthday because Kale's a July fourth baby. Yeah, that's right. See, True Tyler, American. True American. Fuck. That's, um, a, that's an easy one. That's an easy one. Okay, and. My sister's birthday is also on July 4th. You think I could have rattled that off as quickly? I know right. Kale. Okay. All right? All right. All right. We're more than work friends. Exactly. Right. That's fine. We're work um, lovers. Oh. <laughs> hey, yo. Listen, all right. If you want to put our business on Front Street. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. In four weeks, we might be doing something cool, too. Might be. And... <laughs> might. We'll do for Sean's birthday. For Kale's, we might. <laughs> well, you know. Hey, listen, I don't want the attention, so it's fine. <laughs> I said we were going to roast Tyler on the 17th. You want me to say we're going to roast Kale for his birthday? No, because he will just won't show up. <laughs> Wait, yeah, please don't. I'm very sensitive. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. It's okay. We won't do that. That's why instead we're going to celebrate the pals on our 350th episode. So we're, we're planning on having a lot of fun this summer. A lot of great guests. A lot of cool things coming your way. Um Stay tuned. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, let's see. Promiscuous time travel traveler says bringing back, bring back his hot minute. The first one was garbage, but the second one was actually pretty decent. In reference to Marco, let's Marco's go, minute, Marco's minute, baby. I never want to do that again. 
Uh, every, I feel like the listeners are asking for it, Sean. I don't. Uh, it's not up to you. No, that Do you guys? Happen. So I just looked this up. I was, I was curious to see how close we are to a thousand. Um, not far. Yeah, like total yeah. videos. Eight oh four. Yeah, you talking about videos? Uh, no, a- actual episodes of recorded comic spells. And you're getting that from Podbean? Yeah, eight oh four. So that would be accurate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Dang wow. It. Nice. We're almost there. Uh, Harris in the chat says, I have known Sean for over a decade, and I usually forget the exact day of his birthday. First of all, Harris, you've known me for 20 plus years, so I don't know where you're getting this decade from. I met you when I was 11 years old, okay? So I don't know where you're getting that number from. But yes, he also doesn't remember my birthday, and that's fine. Who cares? But I have a show, and on this show, we celebrate me. And we celebrate <laughs> my birthday. So thank you. That's pal of the year right there. That's right. <laughs> my demand. Sean's demand. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. We're going to get out of here. We got to record the Across the Spider-Verse review. Um, Patreon.com is the best way to support us. We appreciate every single person that is a part of that. I don't care how much you're supporting. It's just the fact that you're choosing to do it. Um, if your hard-earned money in any way goes towards what we're doing here, um, then you have all my love. So thank you so much for that. We have a lot of great stuff up there that I think you'll get a kick out of if you enjoy what we do here. You get to vote uh, for the next book club. Uh, every single month we put a poll up. Uh, the Flashpoint book club is dropping uh, on the 6th. So that's directly as a result of patrons voting for it. Uh, you guys heard the nickname and shout out. Now Rom V all knows all your names. So how cool is that? Um, you get our newsletters. Kale dropped his. Uh, Kale dropped the first 10 pages of his sitcom uh, that he wrote. Um, and that's pretty cool. Uh, Palling Around is up there. We just dropped a new one this Friday or this Thursday. So we are constantly doing things up there. And so if you're interested Go check out our Patreon page. Uh, this show is live every single Saturday at 10, 15 a.m. Eastern. Thursdays, 6 p.m. Eastern for Pals Pulls. If you want to influence the books that we review on that show, the listener poll is up on Twitter, and you can vote for which book you think we should review, and uh, we'll review it on the show. Last week, we did two of the books, so we're working uh, overtime. Sort of. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. 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 The intelligence. Um, exactly. Everything else at the Comics Pals. Plugs, Kale. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Comics Pals. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Toto Into. That's T O T O I N T O W. You can find my work at Kaleward.com. That's C A L E W A R D.com. Uh, anybody excited for uh, Transformers Beast Wars? Yes. Because I'm, yeah, I'm over here living by myself and I'm thrilled. Yeah. Let's go. I'm, I want to go. I'm more excited about that than I was Spider-Verse. There's only one movie I'm more expi- excited about right now. That's Barbie. Oppenheimer. Another, Ooh, has- Oppenheimer, another Hasbro. Yes. Another Hasbro movie. So we're on the Hasbro yeah. trip right there. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh. Oppenheimer, like, yeah. Oppenheimer, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sponsored by Hasbro. Yeah. <laughs> ba- baby's first nuclear bomb. <laughs> <laughs> if you, yeah, if you combine all the figures, they make the you know, the new <laughs> Oh, I have that science kit. Yeah. Oh, shit. Uh, did you get through your whole plug there, Kale? Yep. Cool. Marco? 
You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Toto and Toe. Oops, nope. <laughs> at Mr. Marco Anamoto. Uh, come talk to me about, well, more these more uh, AI takes. I, I love getting engaged and uh, when getting someone... Claimed. When someone so eloquent can uh, come back to me about their opinions and stuff, I, I think it's always a, and, and in good faith, uh, I think it's always a good conversation. Um, mm. But I am excited for Shin Kamen Rider. Uh, I want to see the fuck out of that. So God, I, it's not, it's not over here. It released in the U.S., but it's not, it's nowhere else. Will it not come over? I, it might, but there's no, no date, nothing. Eat shit, Kale. I'm dying. Oh. <laughs> I've heard good things. I've heard good things. I've heard excellent things. So I'm and trailer alone, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna watch that. Okay. Very excited. Y'all about to get what I've been talking about. Ty. Uh you can follow me at the Tyler Olson on Instagram and Twitter. It's gonna be a very Diablo 4 weekend for me, I gotta say. Mm. Um I've been playing since <laughs> Thursday night. Sean. Uh, Sean, no, never mind. It's horrible. It's a bad game. It's not fun. I haven't been playing a lot. It's not as if my entire fucking Battle.net list that I'm looking at right now is all Dude, I know you got uh, the Battle.net launcher on auto start because anytime it says you log in, I'm like, oh, Sean turned his computer on for the show. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yep. I know that. So I know the, the show's about to start. I see Sean's Battle.net pop up. <laughs> fun, though. I'm playing Barb. I'm playing a Barbarian. It's usually my, my go-to kind of. I like a good uh, multi-weapon battle axe kind of fellow. So. That's so fun. As for me, uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at Sean Soulplex. I will not be playing Diablo 4, unfortunately. Um, you know, it is what it is. So I'll be uh, home watching uh, watching other people enjoy what I won't, I guess. Damn. Life no, streams. I'll be thinking about the conversation we just had with Rom 100%. Yeah, great um, interview. Yeah, absolutely. It was fantastic, and I'm I'm glad you all heard it. Glad we got to be a part of it. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you guys next week. Until then, take care, guys. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>